I've never been very good at setting the table. My mom was a home economics teacher, and she taught me how to do it, but I always did it wrong, on purpose. See, I figured if I didn't get it right, I'd get out of having to do it all the time. Well, that's continued through today. I don't set the table very often, but when I do, I like take the plate like it's a Frisbee and just kind of throw it on the table. Whatever side of the plate I'm closest to, that's where the silverware goes. And the napkin, well, it just kind of wherever it lands. Everything's chaotic, but it's kept me from having to do it very often. It's worked well for me. I've done the same with laundry. (laughs) Well, I'm going to set the table for our new series on the Ten Commandments. We're calling it Written in Stone, and I don't want to be sloppy about it. I want to carefully lay some things out. I want to put the utensils in the right place so that you and I can dig into a fabulous meal over the next several months. Now, my guess is some of you want to do a deeper dive during this series, and so we've included four resources on the Sermon Extras tab. You can get to this on our website or on our mobile app. I recommend all four of these resources. I've been reading all four of them. If you're thinking, I don't want to read four, well, let me just encourage you, read the first one, brand new book by Jen Wilkin called 10 Words to Live By. Recent polls show 80% of Americans claim to believe in the Ten Commandments, but only 14% can name them. Even fewer consider keeping them. So for many Americans, the Ten Commandments are not set in stone. Well, we won't take a quiz now, but I hope at the end of our series, 100% of us will be able to name all of them. Several years ago, back when Jay Leno hosted The Tonight Show, he did one of his jaywalking segments, and, and with that, he'd just go out onto the streets with a microphone, a microphone and someone running a camera, and he'd ask people questions. This particular night, he went out onto the street, and he asked people to name just one of the Ten Commandments. Person after person was stumped by the question, until one woman answered timidly, God helps those who help themselves? Uh, No. The Ten Commandments have influenced our country and the laws of other nations more than any other document. Ray Fowler writes this, They have been a positive good whenever nations have enforced them and people have followed them. Whenever nations and people have disregarded them, it has only meant moral and societal decay. James Madison, our fourth president, made this statement, We stake the future of this country on our ability to govern ourselves under the principles of the Ten Commandments. I'm afraid we're in trouble. In their book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim conducted the first and largest mass survey on private morality. The way they did this is they guaranteed anonymity to those who took part in the survey. 
Well, they discovered a number of alarming stats. Let me share two. 74% said that they would steal from those who wouldn't miss it, and 64% will lie as long as no one gets hurt. That book came out 30 years ago. I can't imagine things have gotten any better in the past three decades. Man, we've moved as a country from what is right and what is wrong to if it feels good, do it. My mind goes to Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The last verse of the book of Judges summarizes the situation in our society today. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Friends, we've thrown away the king and his commands to our own detriment. Now, churches have capitulated as well. I came across a cartoon of a church sign meant to be humorous, and I laughed at the beginning, but it's truer to life than we care to admit. The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, that's not going to happen here, 45-minute worship services, we have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium, everything you've wanted in a church, and less. Well, friends, at Edgewood, we don't want to be a light church. No, instead, it's our desire to burn bright as we make disciples who make disciples by gathering, growing, giving, and going with the gospel, all for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and it's found in the Ten Commandments. Abortion is not just a harmless choice. It's a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. By the way, if abortion is in your past, let me be quick to say that there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus Christ. Marriage vows are sacred because marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for life, no matter what the current politically correct view happens to be. Now, in order to set the table today, we're going to focus on four key words. Redemption, relationship, reverence, and then requirements. We could put it into a sentence. Redemption, relationship, and reverence come before God gives his requirements. Let's look first at redemption. We're reminded of how God redeemed his people, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. So after serving as slaves in Egypt for 400 years, God raised up Moses to lead his people out of captivity. Seven different times Moses spoke to Pharaoh and he said these words, which came from God, let my people go, that they may serve me, that they may make a feast to me in the wilderness. 
God sent 10 plagues, led them across the Red Sea at the Gulf of Suez. Well, the Suez area has been in the news uh, recently. Uh, Egypt has been in the news when this big container ship owned by Evergreen, this one particularly is called Evergiven, when it blocked traffic in the Suez Canal for six days. Are you aware Egypt is now holding this ship as ransom? Until they pay, get this, $900 million. I guess we could say the Evergiven is ever grounded. <laughs> the owners are probably echoing something like Moses said, let my ship go. Now, back to the Israelites. Hunger and thirst were their first companions, and they grumbled greatly against God. Well, he mercifully met their needs. He gave them living water. He gave them food from heaven. The people continued to gripe and to complain. After arriving at Mara, where the water was bitter, the people came to an oasis, and then they entered the wilderness of Sinai. That's an area that was uninhabited like a desert. They ended up living there for a year. And we read that they encamped before the mountain. What mountain? Well, Horeb refers to a group of mountains two miles in length, one mile wide. On the northeast side, there's a plain that can hold two million people. Mount Sinai is one specific summit, interestingly, that's shaped like a large pulpit. Previously, Moses had been at this mountain to meet with God. Well, you can read about that in Exodus 3, verse 12. God promised Moses he would return to that exact spot. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And that's when God appeared through the burning bush. So it's on this mountain that God enters into a formal covenant relationship with his people. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses went up and down the mountain three different times. He went up to meet with God. He went down to communicate God's message to God's people. Now, Jen Wilkin is spot on when she writes, God introduces the Ten Commandments to his people by identifying them as the Lord their God and prompting them with, remember Egypt. Why? Because before Israel can pledge allegiance to Yahweh alone, she must recall her costly deliverance. Redemption, relationship, and reverence come before God gives his requirements. Look, look next at relationship. God rehearses the redemption of his people, and in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 8, he reminds his people of the special relationship he has with them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you. This is so tender. How I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Let's look at that first phrase, bore you on eagle's wings. God did all the work as he swooped in like a swift eagle, carried his people out of bondage, brought them to himself. Now, this is quite a picture. 
because it reminds us of what an eagle would do when a little eaglet is in the nest and the eagle thinks that the little one's ready to fly, would kind of push him out of the nest, but then fly underneath the little guy. So if the little one fell, he'd be caught on the wings of the eagle. Listen to the lyrics of Moses' song, Deuteronomy 32:11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. Next phrase, treasured possession. Now, that doesn't refer to like the treasury of a country. No, it refers to a king's private treasure box. We might say his personal stash. Deuteronomy 4.20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. Notice next, he calls them a kingdom of priests. Well, priests had special access. They served as mediators. They prayed for others. God has always desired for his people to take the good news to the nations. They were to be a conduit by which God blessed the whole world. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. This idea is picked up in the New Testament when 1 Peter 2.9 says these words about you and I. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, if the verse stopped there, that would be, well, it'd be great. That's amazing, but it doesn't stop there. All of that is for a purpose. Here it is, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has always wanted his people to live on mission, proclaiming his excellencies to those who are in darkness. Notice next he calls them a holy nation. God's heart has always been for his people to be holy, set apart for his sacred Purposes. Listen to Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So we see redemption and relationship, and now reverence come before God gives his requirement. Now, we don't have time to go through all of verses 9 through 25, so here's some highlights. God's people were told to wash their clothes. They were told to keep away from the mountain and abstain from intimacy. Such careful preparation underscored what was about to transpire. Listen now to verses 16 through 20. And imagine if you were one of those people standing there. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke 
because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. That's a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet, that's a shofar, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Think of all the senses and how they were engaged. Deafening thunder, a loud trumpet blast which kept getting louder and louder. That would have come in through their ears. Flashing lightning, which lit up the thick darkness. That's what their eyes would have seen. The smell of smoke is from a furnace right into their noses. And then the mountain trembling as it, the, earth, the earth started to shake and quake under their feet. They probably had a hard time even standing up. They could see, hear, smell, and virtually taste the fire. And all of that was designed to communicate God's authority and his power to judge. I'm sure God had their full attention. What do you think? Verse 12 adds that God set limits on the mountain in order to communicate, keep your distance or you will die. God said to the people, if you touch the mountain, you're going to be vaporized. Well, that applies to animals as well. Twice we read, if the people didn't follow what God said, he would break out against them. That literally means to burst forth. You don't want God bursting forth against you. The people were petrified. The last time God manifested himself like this was in Genesis 19.28 when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. As I reflected on that, here's what I wrote down. We underestimate the holiness of God. And we overestimate our own goodness. So listen, in light of his holiness... Our sins are horrible. This week I was challenged by a post from Jared Wilson. He said this, we take God lightly. We treat him flippantly. We're too busy saying we in church when we should be saying woe is me. The weightiness, the gravity, the all-encompassing and awe-inspiring glory of the Creator God, the great I Am, is woefully neglected in far too many places. I think of how God vaporized Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire. Or how about Uzzah when the ark of God started to fall? He reached out to touch it. And he was killed on the spot. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a serious matter to approach the Almighty. We cannot, we must not be irreverent, bored, passive, or come to him on our own terms when we say something like this. Well, my God wouldn't do this, or my God would do that. Who are we to say who our God is? He is God, we're not. 
Most of us are way too casual with God. We end up not taking his commands or his commission seriously. Listen, God is big, he's mighty, he's marvelous, he's holy, and he's to be revered. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, 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 that's Old Testament. Okay, let's go New Testament. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh, it's wonderful. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. So, redemption, relationship, and reverence come before God gives his requirements. I appreciate Kevin DeYoung's insight. The Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. God said, I hear your cry. I will save you because I love you. And when you are saved, free and forgiven, I'm going to give you a whole new way to live. Watch this. Grace comes before the guardrails. Relationship was established before the requirements were given. Now, one of our purposes in this series is to learn the Ten Commandments. They're found in Exodus chapter 20. And to help us with this, we've provided bookmarks. They're in the row in front of you, right in the seat back. You'll see offering envelopes, and right in front of them is a stack of book of bookmarks. I'd encourage you to take one, maybe take two. We've ordered a couple thousand of these. We want you to be very familiar with this. And by the end of this series, we want everyone to have memorized these. Now, to make it easier, we have taken the commandments. Some are rather long, and we've put them into two or three word summary statements to make it easier for us. And so the first one is one God. That's our topic next week, commandment number one. Number two, no idols. Number three, revere his name. Commandment number four, remember to rest. Commandment number five, honor parents. So we're half done. Well, now if you look at six through ten, they all start with no, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. I was talking to Sheila Kershak this week. Our Awana children know the Ten Commandments since they're woven into memory verses, handbook activities, large group teaching. So here's what I think. I think if our children know the Ten Commandments, uh, we should probably know them as well. Now, I recognize just quoting the commandments doesn't mean we're any closer to keeping them but we must first know them before we can grow in them. Let me now give 10 observations about the 10 commandments. Number one, in Hebrew, these commands are actually called the 10 words. In the Greek translation of Exodus 30, 34, 28, they're called the Decalogue. Deca means 10, log from logos referring to words, 10 words. Number two, God's commands reveal God's character. So when we gaze upon his law, we see his glory. We see his greatness. We also see his goodness. 
Deuteronomy 5.24, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. Number three, these commands mark Israel as God's chosen people. Psalm 147, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Number four, the commandments are connected to other events in Israel's history, other themes actually in the Bible. Well, here's some. This maybe will just whet our appetite. There's a lot more. So there were 10 plagues. The plagues were designed to show the impotence of Egypt's gods. And so the 10 words communicate God's rule and right to demand full allegiance from his people. According to Jewish tradition, the Ten Commandments were given on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. Well, think of this. Think of Sinai and think of three different parts. You have the people down at the bottom who are not allowed to touch And then you have other priests who can go like halfway. And then you have Moses and later Aaron able to go all the way up. And so think of Sinai like a sanctuary. Think of Sinai like the precursor to the tabernacle, the temple down at the bottom. The outer court where the people are. The middle, the holy place where priests can go. And then the top, well, the most holy place where the high priest goes. Oh, there's one more I thought of. You'll see in the text, it says, on the morning of the third day. I'm reminded of Abraham and Isaac going up to a mountain on the third day. And how about what we just celebrated, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. Number five, God's commands are good guardrails for life. God knows what is best for us, and so he set up guardrails that we're not to cross. As such, they should bring us, listen, delight, not fright. It should be like, God, thank you for these 10 statements because I don't want to cross them. Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. If you're following the Edgewood Bible reading plan, today you would have read, or maybe you're still going to read, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13, which says, good statutes and commandments. Number six, these commands were spoken and written directly by God. This is stated clearly, Exodus 31, 18. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. These 10 words are weighty because they come directly from God. Parents, grandparents. Number seven, these commands are to be passed on to the next generation. Deuteronomy 6 says, when your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you? So it's like a child saying, what's the big deal with the Ten Commandments? What's up with that? Well, then you shall say to your son, and the Lord brought us out, tell the story of your redemption. They were to tell the story of the exodus coming out of Egypt, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. 
Earlier in the same chapter is where we read that parents are to impress these instructions on their children. Pastor Kyle will be preaching on that passage in Deuteronomy 6 in two weeks. That'll be youth weekend. Observation number eight, the Ten Commandments can be reduced to two commandments. Jesus summarized all the statutes this way, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, here's something interesting. The first four commandments deal with loving God, the final six with loving others. Number nine, these commands are actually given twice. If you were to read the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a longer version there. Well, what's up with that? Well, those were given 40 years later. And that really is the text of a sermon from Moses that his text is actually Exodus chapter 20. He's expositing Exodus chapter 20. And number 10, various religious groups list the commands differently. And so maybe as you go through the commandments, you're like, well, I thought one, what's up with two? And Well, here's, here's why. Catholics and Lutherans just combine the first two commandments into one, and they divide the tenth into two. And so the key is not so much how you list them, but to make sure you don't leave any out. Well, here's a question perhaps you're asking. You know, Ten Commandments, that's Old Testament. I mean, are they binding for Christians today? Well, on the one hand, the New Testament does seem to set aside the Old Testament law. Well, let me just give one example, Romans 6.14, since you are not under law but under grace. But on the other hand, there are verses which indicate the law will never go away. Jesus said in Luke 16.17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, one reason the New Testament speaks about the law in several different ways is because there are several different kinds of law. There's civil law, there's ceremonial law, there's moral law. And we must carefully distinguish between them in order to make sense of the law and ultimately of the gospel. Well, civil law, what's that? Well, those are laws that governed Israel as a nation under God. They included guidelines for how to wage war, how to use land, regulations for debt, etc. Ceremonial laws, they were regulations for religious festivals and feasts, for worship at the tabernacle and later in the temple. It included laws for clean and unclean foods, instructions for ritual purity, guidelines for priests, and a lot of instruction about sacrificing animals. Moral law. The moral law represents the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and others. God's moral law will last forever. It applies to all cultures at all times. And it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. So the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer in effect because they pointed ahead to Jesus Christ who fulfilled all of them. There are many verses on this. Colossians 2.17 is one. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, another question you might be asking then is, 
how are they relevant for today? How should we view them? I have found these five metaphors helpful. See the commandments as a map. They guide our conduct. God's law teaches us how to live like God wants us to live. Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Secondly, see him as a muzzle. God's law keeps us from living lawlessly. That's the argument Paul makes in Romans chapter 13. The law is a deterrent which can keep depravity in check. The threat of penalty can have a preventative, can be a preventative measure. That's why when a nation moves away from God's moral laws, trouble always follows. Exodus 20, 20, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of God can keep us from sinning. Next, a mirror. God's standards show us our sin. So you look at the Ten Commandments, you're like, uh, busted. See, the more you try to not covet, the stronger the temptation becomes to want more. The more you try to not lie, oh, the more you find yourself exaggerating. Romans 7, 7, that was Paul's deal. He said, yet if, I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Fourth metaphor, a master. The commands bring bondage. Why? Well, because they're impossible to keep. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The law convicts and the law condemns. And finally, see the commands as a mentor. These commands are not like rungs on a ladder that you climb hoping to get to heaven. No, the law points us to Christ. Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So one of the most important uses of the Ten Commandments is to show sinners, that's all of us, our need for the Savior. I like what John Calvin wrote, Moses had no other intention than to invite all men to go straight to Christ. By the way, it's essential in evangelism to preach the law in order to reach the lost. People must know they're sinners before they can see their need for the Savior. More about that at the end of the series. So one of the purposes of God's commands is to show we fall short of his holy standards. We miss the mark of his perfection. And even if we keep some of them some of the time, or most of them most of the time, it's still not enough. Well, here's why. God turns up the heat, James 2.10, forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one time, is guilty of all of it. And so if you claim to keep all the commandments, well, then you're breaking the ninth commandment about lying. <laughs> Two new tribes missionary families, they're now called Ethnos 360, moved in with a tribe in order to reach them with the gospel. 
They translated the Bible and they taught them the Ten Commandments. And after understanding these commands, a group of tribesmen met with the missionaries. This is what they said. We are in big trouble with God. God's law tells us not to kill, but we've killed other men. God's law tells us not to steal, but we've stolen. We've broken God's commandments, but we did not know that God commanded these things. And then they said this, from now on, we will keep God's commandments. A couple weeks later, they returned to the missionaries with their heads hung as they lamented, we are in really big trouble with God. Now we know God's commandments, but we still break them. Friends, the Ten Commandments are important, but at the same time, they're impossible to keep fully and totally. God wants us to follow the one individual in history who kept every one of them completely. Jesus Christ is the only person who's ever lived a perfect life and perfectly followed the law. So in order to approach a holy God, who according to 1 Timothy 6.16 dwells in unapproachable light, one needs a mediator. In the Old Testament, God used Moses on a temporary basis. But now, the Messiah, who is mediator, has come. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the Ten Commandments were not given to remedy our sin, but to reveal our sin and to point us to our need for a Savior. Jesus Christ kept the whole law, and on the cross, on our behalf, he suffered the penalty we deserve for not keeping God's law. Now, I want to finish setting the table for our series by sharing part of a powerful post written by Mark Lawfridge called Of Pharaohs and Easter. On the night before Easter Sunday, just a couple weeks ago, With great fanfare and razzmatazz, under tight security and the gaze of a television audience, 22 of Egypt's pharaohs were moved to their new home in the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. There's one pharaoh in that. The 18 kings and four queens were transported with great pageantry in chronological order of their reigns. But what struck me most was a startling and stunning contrast. Here were the mummified remains of rulers of Egypt, men and women once regarded as gods, being moved from one resting place to another at Easter. The contrast couldn't have been any greater. The timing, magnificent. The very next morning, Christians all over the globe met to celebrate another king leaving his tomb. Not dead, but alive. Not being moved, but moving, full of life. And unlike 22 pseudo-gods, this one really was and is God. A parade of dead kings on a weekend that celebrates the resurrection of the king of kings. There they lie in broken, mummified remains while he's risen and exalted. Now, in an ironic twist, one of those pharaohs may have been one who said to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey him. That's Exodus 5, verse 2. And yet here, his lifeless remains are paraded on the very weekend that marks the triumph of the living Lord whom he questioned, paraded in a show of empty pomp and departed glory. The day of the pharaohs is long gone. But Pharaoh's question hangs on the lips of many human 
beings. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Mark well the resurrection. That's who this Lord is. He is the one who triumphs and before whom not just pharaohs, but kings, presidents, and all mankind will one day bow. And on that day, which the resurrection guarantees, Christ will return and every eye will turn heavenward. Every knee will bow. Everyone will see that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. It will be a spectacle that dwarfs this parade of pharaohs by an infinite measure. So who is the Lord that I should obey him? He is the King of kings. He's risen from the dead. He is Lord of lords. And that admission needs to be made now, for on that day it will be too late. He must be given his rightful place in our lives, front and center, my king. Can you say that? My Lord. He is the only king to defeat death and the only king who gives life. You know, the deacons have been studying a book by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I highly recommend it. Here's a quote that jumped out at me. The Christian life boils down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. <laughs> and I wonder, if you've been in a faraway place? You've been breaking the commands and you just don't care? God's been prompting you today, even during the message, guilt has come up, conviction, and you're like, I, I got to do this better i got to get back to what's right. Well, you're in the right place because you can come back easily. You turn, you repent, and you come back and, and, and determine to follow Jesus with all that you have. Maybe you're not saved yet. Maybe you've not yet surrendered, submitted your life to the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can go to Jesus right now. Everything has been set for you. He's done it all. And he's just waiting for you to respond. Would you close your eyes now and you could pray this prayer with me. Jesus, thank you for fully keeping the commands. Because I haven't. Many times I don't even want to. And I know I can't keep them fully. I confess that I'm a sinner. I'm busted by these commands. I repent of my sins. Thank you for bridging the divide between my unholy behavior and a holy God. I believe you paid the price for my sins by dying on the cross, and you showed your power by rising from the dead on the third day. I believe, and I now receive you, Jesus, as my Savior, my mediator, my King, my Lord. Come into my life and lead me to follow you faithfully from now on. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.